Hello and welcome to the penultimate episode of the Cleontel podcast with me, Robin Allender. And this week I'm going to be speaking to some former members of the Cleontel, original drummer Dan Evans, guitarist and songwriter Innes Phillips, and multi-instrumentalist Mel Dracy. So it's a bumper edition, and because of that I've decided to split it up into two parts. So in part one you can hear my interviews with Dan and Innes, and in part two, which should be next up in your podcast feed, you can hear my chat with Mel. If you're listening to this episode the week it comes out, then you can catch the band in Paris on the 1st of October. Head over to theclientel.co.uk for more information. But for now, please enjoy my chat with Dan Evans in the first half of this episode and Innes Phillips in the second half. Dan, you're resplendent in a Cleontel t-shirt tonight, as well, I can see. <laughs> That's right, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm towing the party line this evening. <laughs> <laughs> what era is that t-shirt from, is it? Um, that's a good question. I actually don't remember exactly. I think it's sort of circa, it must be 2011, 2010, mm. sort of that kind of era. Nice. And you yeah. just said before we started that you're still really good friends with everyone from the band and you live quite close to them, etc. Yeah, so... Apart from uh, Innes, who's emigrated to Australia, um, the rest of us are still kind of within a it's quite a small radius of each other within sort of North London. So, yeah, yeah we, we meet up socially quite often. Um, I'm also good friends with Mark, who's the current drummer yeah. for the Tantel. And, uh, yeah, and, um, I, I was lucky enough to kind of meet up the meet up with the guys, actually, to... The, the, the plan was just to hang out with them at the recording studio, mm. um, and just you know hang about have some fun listen to them rehearsing and playing down some tracks for their current album and i ended up getting drafted in and playing a little bit of drums as well so uh managed to sneak in a sort of uh, drum feature on uh, blue over blue yeah i'm pretty pleased about so that's great <laughs> there's two drummers on that track yeah that's great alistair was saying he, he um this was no disrespect to mark but you think he thinks you you've kind of got more swing to your style as a drummer. <laughs> i love yeah he always this is this is such an ass thing to say yeah i don't see it myself i'm flattered that he thinks that um but uh, yeah i'll go along with it <laughs> he said people used to dance at gigs when you were drumming for them <laughs> uh yeah i was probably too busy concentrating trying not to screw up the beat oh, right. <laughs> to notice do you still play music now then um, you know, off and on. I mean, I've got, I've still got the original drum kit that I used to play in the band back in the day where we were, you know, uh, when we were sort of doing nights around London and various venues and things. And um, yeah, I've never got rid of that drum kit. It's still quite well tuned despite having living, you know, being outdoors in a shed for <laughs> several years at the time now. Um, it still actually sounds pretty nice when you play it. But uh, yeah, I, I play the drums occasionally, not as often as I'd like to. I've got um, uh, an electric uh, guitar downstairs and a, and a bass guitar as well. And uh, my kids play on the... We have a piano, actually. The, the current drummer, Mark Keane, ah. um, his, his parents owned and he was looking for new owners because they were moving house. Right. And uh, so I've actually got Mark's parents' old piano in the oh, nice. living room as well. Yeah, I had a good chat with Mark. He's got some interesting piano stories, including recording a demo on Christine McVie's piano. For the new album, which is a great story. Nice, yeah. Um, I like how everything's so amicable with the band. There's no, there's no, no kind of bad blood at all. Is there? 
<laughs> yeah, there's, there's only banter. Yeah, <laughs> there's no real bad blood. Yeah, that's so. Has it always been like that? Your friendship has there always been like. What was it like when you first met everyone at, at school in, in Fleet? Yeah, I mean, this is going back quite a long way. So, uh, Innes and Alistair, I've known for a number of years. So you had to, you'd have to go right the way back to kind of junior school, which is where I was first aware of them. Right. And you know, I, I don't remember us being very close friends. Like we were always kind of amicable at school, as far as I can remember. And then I actually, I moved overseas with my family. My dad got a job overseas. For a number of years and so I left the school where we all attended and um, and then when I came back that was the moment that I remember the friend- friendships really strongly forming at that point so I would have been I don't know 14 15 at that point and um, yeah coming back I remember being in a in a history class with Innes and uh, Innes and Alistair I think had already formed a friendship of some sort and uh, you know quite quickly my friendship with Innes extended to Alistair as well. And before long, I was kind of invited into the inner circle of this kind of musical adventure that they were they were starting and, and, and asked to be like a drummer, air quotes, because they, we didn't have a drum kit. Right. I couldn't play the drums. I, I'm not quite <laughs> sure what the basis of that invitation was on. Um, was it based on shared kind of musical tastes, things you were all listening to? Or? A little bit, yeah. Um, I'm sort of embarrassed to repeat what those musical tastes were at the time, but yeah, a little bit. <laughs> really? I feel like you guys, from talking to you and James and Alistair, it feels like you've always had a very specific taste in music. None of you had like a dodgy heavy metal phase or anything like that. <laughs> no, no, definitely yeah, definitely not that I'm aware of anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think probably my musical tastes were still forming and I think probably James and Alistair's and even Innocence were slightly like uh, maturing at a slightly faster rate than mine had been mm. and I think my friendship with them was sort of igniting an interest in music in me at around about the same time so it's kind of why the formative relationship was quite such a strong bond was because it was that kind of tribal adolescent period where things are rapidly changing and and you're discovering new you know new experiences and new tastes and things and and uh, through them I think I probably was introduced a lot of psychedelic 60s stuff, 13th Floor Elevators, Love, Mm. um, you know, Jimi Hendrix, uh, things like this. And there was a very strong kind of like uh, interest in sort of 60s era music. Um, You know, that was coming from both, I remember both from Innes, but particularly from Alistair as well. Mm. Um, And yeah, no, that was was part of the friendship forming there. I think that was it. Yeah, I suppose that's quite... Is that unusual music to be getting into as a 13, 14-year-old? I mean, what were other people listening to at the time? Yeah, not that. That's definitely, yeah, you're right. So I I think I saw myself as a bit of an outsider within the uh, social group at school. Yeah. And I think I identified strongly with Alistair and and Innes because they didn't appear to be following the crowd in any way. I wouldn't say they were outsiders. You know, they they weren't particularly... You know, they didn't stand out. It was particularly awkward or anything like this. So both, well, you know, Alistair especially was a bit of a raconteur, always has been, you know, a bit of a charis- charismatic type. So, um, <laughs> you know, he was always quite funny. Right. And uh, and Innes was too. So the, the humour was quite central to things, I'd say. Yeah. Um, Alistair was always quite intentionally funny and Innes was always unintentionally funny, <laughs> but they were both equally funny in their own way. Yeah. <laughs> 
that's really interesting, I think, because I was going to ask you about that. Because I think when you're forming those friendships at that age, particularly if you're in a band, it's not just music that's important. It is also comedy, I think. I think that's a huge part of it. So what kind of things were you watching or listening to? Or, or was it your own humour that you were kind of... I think it was... I think we were watching a lot of things in common. Yeah. But, you know, sort of uh, Peter Kirk, Dudley Moore, Monty Python, you know, these kinds of things. Mm. But I don't think that was the basis of the friendship necessarily. It, we, we just had our own... We had our own little kind of clique sense of humour and I think that was enough for us. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny that the music was very serious, though. Yeah. <laughs> It was. Yeah. It really was. I mean, that was kind of... But interestingly, like, we were obsessed with things like The Enemy, Melody Maker. Yeah. And as soon as we started really, you know, gelling together musically, like, we weren't necessarily... The competence didn't match the kind of interest. <laughs> but um, not at first, I mean. But we were definitely, like, looking to... We were aspiring to things like Melody Maker and reading about bands that we liked. And then that was that was seen as like an aspirational goal to be interviewed by the enemy and appear somewhere on the enemy, even if it was like page 67 or something, you know. <laughs> I remember for a long time, that's what we really, that's all we wanted to do for a period of like two or three years was just get into enemy. Yeah, that's great. And what 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 were some of the bands you were listening to? I mean, oh, you mentioned a lot of the 60s psychedelia stuff, but any contemporary bands particularly? So... Uh, I guess our kind of taste varied a little bit within within that broad umbrella. So I know that Alistair and James had quite similar interests in sort of more like felt and, you know, some uh, some of the kind of like indie bands of that ilk. James was very obsessed with like uh, Blue Nun Records mm. and um, oh, flying music <laughs> exclusive. Sorry, Flying Nun. <laughs> Blue Nun. Um, music exclusively from New Zealand seemed yeah. to be pre- his preoccupation for a long time. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, Innes, Innes had, uh, you know, he was into kind of like um, Piper at the Gates of Dawn, right. you know, Sid Barrett, early Sid Barrett, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, even T-Rex appeared at one point. And, um, and Alistair was uh, a lot more interested in the very sort of like mu- much more extreme sort of um, experimental pop art, mm. you know, psychedelic 60s stuff. He was more into kind of uh, mod for a time. Mm you know, 60s mod music, you know, Northern Soul, that kind of thing. He used to go to a lot of all-nighters. Really? Um, he tells me. Did he do all the dancing? Um, yeah, I've, I've sort of seen a little bit of the dancing. I don't have, like, uh, you know, videos or anything, but um, I've, I've been around when he's, you know, let, let fly a couple of times. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he did say, actually, once when I asked him about the name, the Cleontelle, he did say he chose it because he thought it had a mod edge to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> I yeah, I mean, he told me a girlfriend recommended that we call ourselves that because it was sounded quite posh, but a bit sleazy, which is what how she thought of him. <laughs> posh and sleazy. <laughs> That's great. I love. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, the way that you said James being really into all the New Zealand bands. It's yeah. Kind of an exoticism about being into a scene from another country maybe but it's interesting that maybe there are people kind of thinking the scene in fleet sounds very <laughs> aspirational now <laughs> people in new zealand are obsessed with the clientele now. yeah <laughs> but um Al- alistair's talked a lot about growing up in fleet and how that has influenced his songwriting yeah. what was your experience of growing up there 
Fleet was a very sort of affluent and safe uh, playground. Um, you could travel around between people's houses without fear of, you know, traffic collisions on your bike or like, you know, uh, nefarious types hanging around. It was a, a very safe, yeah. like still is like my my mum still lives there and I go and visit her and even today like compared to London it just feels like there's hardly anyone there right <laughs> and there's just fields and you can just walk for miles and not see people and things so um it's perhaps not quite as deserted as we felt like it would have been back then now it's a bit more kind of built up there are new housing estates that have popped up all over the place and a few more people but um certainly it was this kind of we always, especially as we got a little bit older and, and were allowed a bit more freedoms by our parents and we could travel and things. And then we discovered that we could get to London and back in a day and visit all the record shops and the clothing shops and buy sunglasses from Camden Market or whatever. <laughs> um, and suddenly we could emulate the bands that we admired, you know, yeah. by, by dressing and, and wearing the same things that they did. And then suddenly Fleet became, it took on like a different kind of um sensibility it was a bit more like we were missing out on the party the party was always somewhere where we weren't right that, that seems to have a big presence in alistair's songs yeah this idea that, that there's absence and something else going on somewhere else or something you know yeah <laughs> i mean it wasn't it wasn't like terribly dreary it was just we were so tantalizingly close to a lot of places where things were happening but we couldn't quite we didn't have cars and we couldn't quite get there you know yeah <laughs> There's a great song on the new album, Garden Eye Mantra, which Alistair says is about watching these cars drive off to the raves around the Orbital in the early 90s. Uh, yeah, which there's I, a lot of that. Right, yeah. We, we, uh, I, I'm not sure like the band would necessarily have been uh, heavy heavy into kind of the rave scene at that time. We mm. were probably a little bit too young. Mm -hmm. we, we did go to a few kind of like, I went to a couple of organised like dance events nearby, I remember one in Basingstoke, which is very kind of like, um, you know, not at all very sort of aspirational place to be. But um, we were desperate to kind of do these exciting things, but they were just beyond our reach. You know, we just didn't, we weren't old enough to know people who had cars who could drive us there. We just didn't have the, the means to kind of tap into this uh, zeitgeist. Yeah. But, but that, I suppose, makes you the bond of friendship even closer, really, doesn't it? Because you have your own little world. Yeah. So then for us, exactly, yeah. So for us, it became, well, we can we can get there by doing our own gigs. And so you know, rehearsal became access to that world, I suppose. And we, would find, we found ourselves at Sixth Form College in a situation where there was a, uh, a teacher who was organising like a band night. So for the college, you know, in, 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 we had a sort of a main hall area where they would do plays and, and musical events and stuff and they were setting up like a not a battle of the bands it wasn't it wasn't framed in an adversarial way but they were certainly like setting up a night where they were inviting people who were interested in playing as a band together to perform in front of the you know the people at the sixth form and so we did that we were we were jumping at the chance to do that we really wanted to we were both terrified of standing on the stage in front of our peers but also desperate to get up there as well. Yeah. Because that's what we were convinced, that's what we always wanted to do. And so, like, the first the first attempt was disastrous because <laughs> we were under-rehearsed. So we, we hadn't practised enough. There was no PA. We just had our amps. Yeah. 
and the drums weren't amplified and all the levels were completely wrong. You couldn't hear anyone singing. Yeah, yeah. Um, all you could hear is like crashing cymbals and bass guitar and then like somebody in the distance shouting, you know. It was like terrible <laughs> sound-wise. It sounds very familiar though. <laughs> 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 but seeing bands of that age, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really exciting. It was a really kind of like, we felt, I felt like elated afterwards, even though the general consensus was that was probably the worst thing that had ever happened to us. <laughs> but it's quite good being the drummer in those situations because you just hide behind the cymbals. Yeah. I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know how, I don't know how Alistair does it, to be honest. It's a kind of bravery that I'm, I don't possess. Right, particularly singing, yeah, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But did you not, did you find when you were doing those early gigs that the music is very delicate, so it, it's not always going to work i imagine in the school disco kind of environment <laughs> no it didn't <laughs> we crashed and burned it was horrible wow yeah <laughs> but uh, you know but actually you know what we did then was realize probably actually we do need to rehearse a bit mm. so we went off and we rehearsed and we got a little bit better and a bit tighter and you know i think alistair was probably motivated to write some more songs and maybe Innes did too uh, off the back of that and i think it was they, they used that as fuel i think yeah. So you mentioned those early rehearsals and you didn't you didn't have a drum kit. Am I right in saying you used a, a chest of drawers? Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we used to we used to practice in a kind of space in the loft above the garage of uh Innes's parents' house. And um there was just some old furniture lying around in there and we didn't have a drum kit. We had the promise of a drum kit during the school holidays, but it wasn't the school holidays yet. And so we just had to make do. We were impatient and we wanted to start recording things. I had this like beaten up old cassette tape uh, recorder player thing that we could record on and the microphone just horribly distorted absolutely everything it recorded. <laughs> You'd probably pay a lot to get that kind of effect these days. Right? <laughs> <laughs> get the plug in for it or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, but, then, but then the excitement of being able to record and play back what we were doing was completely addictive and I think after that we just spent all our spare kind of pocket money buying cassette tapes so that we could record things and listen to them back and then have ideas and re-record it and do it again and again you know yeah and at what what stage did you realize that Alistair and Innes were writing songs that were really quite sophisticated <laughs> uh that's a really good question I mean I think probably even back in when we were in Innes's uh, parents' house recording then, I think there were some songs emerging that, that had something about them which I'd not seen before or, you know, I, I, I it was the first time I'd ever been part of that process and even today I find it mesmerising to be involved in a process where you just turn up one day and there's nothing. Yeah. And then somebody says, oh, I've got a little riff or a lick or something, listen to this. And then somebody adds something, somebody adds something else, somebody puts a beat on it, bass line, some lyrics appear. And then, you know, that sounded quite good. Let's try it again, but, you know, change this, that and the other. And then after a couple of weeks, it's the polished gem. And that, that process was really exciting to me. Yeah. Um, and so probably I'd say before we were even in sixth form, we were starting to hear songs that had real promise to them. Mm. And did any of those songs end up on It's Art Dad and Suburban Light? I, I think I think that was it's art dad is a very good snapshot of that period where, you know, the raw kind of songwriting hadn't been refined 
sufficiently by the kind of like technical aspects. And I think the band as it is today, they're much more, they're much slicker than anything we could do at that time. So like having seen James and um, Alistair and Mark just refine their craft over the years is really impressive to me because I've, I've dropped out. I haven't been doing it since. So when I jump back on the drums, I'm still just as rusty as I was back in like 19, whatever it was, you know, 1993. But um, but they've continued to improve. So, and not just the technical aspects, but you know, as the songwriting's obviously improved, and um, just the whole thing has really taken on a, you know, shades of light and dark that never really existed before when I was in the band. So, yeah, it's impressive. It really is. I feel like Alistair. I mean, you know, just from having met him a few times and done a few interviews, I, I just I really admire that he has this very specific vision. Like he's always seemed to know exactly how he wanted something to sound or what he wanted something to be about. And I think that's incredibly inspirational because I think lots of people who are creative or want to be created get sidetracked by trends or, you know, lack of confidence or something. Yeah. Speaking from personal experience. <laughs> but um, but he, Alistair seems to be very... Always have had an idea of what he wanted, I think. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I mean, I, I don't, def I definitely don't pretend to, you know, understand everything that he creates. Um, but uh, yeah, no, he, he definitely does. And, and there are sometimes there are, there can be moments where, like, I, I have particular sort of access, I feel sort of privileged in some ways to have lived through moments in that our collective group lives that have then emerged in the songs. So for me, it's like, you know, sometimes when you listen to a piece of music and you're interpreting or projecting your own feelings onto what you think it might be about, and that takes on a slightly different angle sometimes for occasions where I've gone through a, an event with them and it feels like that is the event coming out through the song. Um, I'll give you one specific example. Uh, a song that I always find quite moving is Porcelain. And um, part of the reason for it is that there's a sort of tragic story behind this, but uh, when I was about 15 years old, my father passed away. And so uh, he, he was quite ill with cancer and uh, he sadly passed away. And then so from that point on, that kind of, you know, made a huge lasting impression on me. I struggled a bit after, after he died uh, with sort of depression and things. And, um, and then a few, well, quite a few years later, uh, Alistair's uh, mother sadly passed away as well. And then shortly after that, I remember us rehearsing and then recording what became Porcelain in the end. And, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the lyrics really sort of like resonated very strongly with me where he's, you know, he's singing about the world as porcelain. And, you know, he could tell me that that's not what it's about. But for me, that's, that's what I forever remember that song to be. And so when I would be, when I was playing in the band, that the emotions that I felt playing the drums for that song were always much more deep than any of the other songs that we would play but for that exact reason, you know. It's almost like it's hard to hold back your emotions when you're that connected to the events behind something that you're then performing on stage. Yeah. Uh, goodness knows how he sang through it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, I mean, I'm so sorry that you had, those experiences at such a young age. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a really interesting point as well that 
you know, songs aren't about literal meanings a lot of the time, but they have they can have an incredible emotional depth behind them that isn't really readable in any kind of logical way, I suppose, mm. <laughs> this emotional weight. I think the new album is is full of that, and there's a lot of those experiences of grief and bereavement in there. Yeah. Um, submerged with, with quite opaque lyrics at times, but it's all there underneath. There's, there's a huge emotional weight to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but it's not, you know, that, I don't want to kind of uh, be too down on it. Mm. You know, there's a lot of other stuff that's uh, perhaps not quite as bleak. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly, you know, what I'm trying to get at is there was definitely sort of a feeling of closeness in the band. But how long were you actually playing in the band? Then, so you joined them when moving to London. So, I'd say when I when I returned from living overseas, I was probably like fourteen. Let's say that would be nineteen eighty eight or something. So nineteen eighty eight to, I've probably ended. I, I actually moved. Um, I was I was I was planning to go back to education after my degree to continue education and that fell through and I ended up traveling with another friend from university and that was in around 97 and and I knew that that was coming and I knew that I needed to step aside from the band mm. because I felt like uh, technically I'd sort of hit my ceiling <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted the guys to be really successful and I didn't want to hold them back and I also kind of had other plans that I wanted to do as well um, and so from 98, uh, 1988 to about 96, I would say, was when I was active in the band. And in those early days, what, what were the kind of differences between Alistair's and Innes's songs for you? And what was their relationship like in that, in that early days? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you don't have to talk about it. So you... No, no yeah. I, I try and stop me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it is, it is, and as this relationship was a source of much interest and amusement <laughs> and conflict. Um, so they would, they were, they were like a, a hilarious double act right. together, yeah. but they, they also kind of infuriate each other a little bit and used to fall out and make up and fall out and make up. And then they would, you know, one minute they would be best friends and they would be, you know, like Lennon McCartney, they were super tight, you know? And then the next minute they wouldn't be talking to each other and then the rest of the band would be trying to patch things up for them. <laughs> wow. And, uh, but, you know, but uh, I think it's, I don't know, I think it was maybe a little bit of creative competitiveness. Um, they both were sort of jostling for uh, position in terms of, like, whose songs were going to be featured more strongly, more prominently. Um, Alistair had very clear ideas of, like you were describing, clear ideas from the beginning of what he wanted to do. Um, Innes, you know, had probably quite a um, productive, creative side uh, on occasion. And then sometimes he would go for a while and not really have have produced anything. And, and he would be happy with that, I think. So, yeah, they're very different, like, almost, I wouldn't say polar opposites, but they were very different characters. And they used to kind of like be quite volatile as a pairing. But, but, Honestly, those two together have like 
I can't think of two any other two humans on earth who can make me laugh quite as much. Really? <laughs> that's so cool. Oh, that's so nice. It feels like um, on It's Art Dad, Alistair's songs have obviously got the 60s influence. And I think there's a, a, quite a Dylan-y thing going on in some of the songs as well. But I feel like Innes's songs have maybe more of a shoegaze vibe or they're a bit darker somehow. Does that, does that sound about right, do you think? Or... Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's hard for me to comment, to be honest. I'm, I, I'm perhaps not the best uh, qualified to comment on these things, but I guess for me, um, I mean, Innes was perhaps a little bit more open to some of the more shoegazy kind of bands that I would have been listening to myself. I was very focused on which bands were producing drum beats that I liked. <laughs> very kind of... Uh, um, shallow, self-centred drummer's <laughs> view of music at that time. But um, uh, I think Innes was perhaps more inclined to listen to some of those and Alistair would be much more, no, this isn't what I'm into. I'm, I'm you know, listening to, you know, whatever. Um, I, can't, I can't think of the top of my head, but whatever kind of 60s bands he would have been into at the time. Yeah. What's the name of the band that did Transparent Day? Do you know that song? I mean, mm. very big... Um... Sorry, I'm just going to have to look. Oh, the West Coast Pop Art yeah. Experiment. Sorry, I'm playing it. The West Coast Pop Art Experimental Band. I think that's a huge influence, isn't it? Yeah. That, exactly. That would have been the sort of band that Alistair would have, uh, you know, I would have found out about from Alistair, perhaps. Yeah, sure. What Do you have any favourite songs from It's Art, Dad? Uh, good question. Um the first song was Gravenwood, so that was a funny one because it became a bit of a signature song for Innes. And it then became a sort of running gag where when Innes wasn't in the band anymore, we would turn up at clientele gigs and the audience would be like like shouting, Gravenwood, hey Gravenwood, <laughs> which wasn't really, you know, it was a kind of like a nudge, nudge, wink, wink kind of joke right. with, with Alistair sort of thing. But uh, but I always really enjoyed that song. Um it was one of these kind of ones that Innes just kind of knocked out one day. Right. And and it, it didn't really seem to... It just seemed to come around preformed. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. We just kind of... we What we played the first time we rehearsed it became the same version that you would hear on that recording or any live gig where we played it. But, uh, but you know, your question about when when did the bands first start to produce songs that perhaps seemed a little bit more sophisticated. Dear Jennifer, I remember being one of those. Um, and uh, The Evening in Your Eyes as well. Yeah, I think that's my favourite from the album. That's a beautiful song, and it just sounds like some lost 60s hit as well. Yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. I think um, I think there were, there were alternative titles as well. A lot of our songs kept morphing from one title to another, so it's it's... I sometimes know songs by a different title that is not listed by on the album. But uh, I think The Evening in Your Eyes, I seem to remember we played at, uh, it was a pub uh, somewhere in North London, I forget which one it was now. Uh, it might have been The Bull and Gate. And we were doing a sound check. And one of the other bands that were playing did their sound check and we were listening to their song. And we were just kind of thinking, yes, uh, it's okay. And then we got up and played The Evening in Your Eyes. And I remember the other band, when we got off, we were very focused on not messing it up. But then when we got off the stage, the other band were, like, a bit stunned. Right. I remember them looking a bit stunned as if to say, oh, damn, we've got a competition. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> that was a great moment. Yeah. I think that was like the first moment where I actually thought, you know what, this band has maybe got legs. Yeah. <laughs> It's great that Gravenwood is a song that the band came back to as well because it's on Bonfires on the Heath, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, it's an old favourite. Mm. You know, it's like a log fire on a winter's evening. It's <laughs> one of those ones that's just comfort food. <laughs> yeah. Do, do, is it strange for you listening back to It's Art, Dad? Because you, you, you'd have been very young making it, I suppose. Yeah. You know the story of the title, right? Well, yeah. Is, is it in it something you chowed down to Innes' dad? Is that right? <laughs> So he has this he has this loft above his garage, right? And the only way you can get in, there aren't proper stairs. It's not like fire regulations approved or anything. There's this like uh, shaky metal stepladder thing balanced precariously on the opening to a trap door. And you have to climb up this thing and it rattles and you always wonder, is it going to collapse underneath me every time you go up and down it? And um, the trap door closed onto the ladder. So you would never like trying to get up there was difficult if the trapdoor was shut. And so what we did was we went up and then we shut the trapdoor and we moved all the amps around and one of the amps was on the trapdoor. And so there was no way anyone from underneath could get in because the amp was super heavy. It was really heavy amp. And then we started rehearsing. We were were really loud. We must have been really loud. And um, I think (laughs) Innes' dad... Well, the story that Alistair tells us that Innes' dad was... uh, having dinner with a tray of food on his lap and <laughs> explosively arose from his chair, showering food all over the carpet to, to race into the garage to bang on the trapdoor to tell us to, to stop making so much noise. Anyway, the, we, we were playing. We saw this trapdoor bouncing up and down with the amp on top of it and we were all looking at each other playing our instruments thinking, what's going on here? What's happening? <laughs> So we stopped to work it out and there was Dennis's dad like banging on the thing, going, turn it down, turn it down. So Innes just kind of moved the amp off, lifted the trap door and his dad just gave him both barrels, right. really shouting at him to turn it down. And Innes just said, but it's art, dad. <laughs> That's so <cool. laughs> oh, you, um, We were just laughing so much. That's great. Well, do, you, do you know, I don't suppose you know the... Um, there's the Welsh band Gorky, Psychotic Monkey. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I love Gorky's. Oh, yeah. they're great. They're, I mean, that's one of my favourite ever bands. But the, mm. their early stuff, the early album Patio, has got some great interruptions from parents <laughs> telling them to keep the noise down. <laughs> Bass sounds travel, all this stuff. It's really quite funny that they've Excellent. included that on the album, yeah. Oh, I'm going to give it a re-listen now. Yeah, Patio's yeah. a fantastic album, yeah. Brilliant. It's great. <laughs> That's your last warning. It does not need to be that loud, especially the bass, which I explained to you not four hours ago. Bass sounds travel much more than any other sounds. You don't need that volume in a room this size. That is your last warning. Okay? Mm.
I'm very serious. I sort of can't <laughs> imagine you being a loud band in the Cleon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we, um, I think, well, one of our big influences, I think, collectively was Spaceman 3. Right, yeah, James mentioned this, yeah. Um, and actually, Innocent I saw Spaceman 3 play their last ever gig, we think, at Reading Festival. And this is a source of, like, this is a bone of contention with Alistair, because <laughs> I think he would love to have seen them play, but didn't. Um, but he's since one upped us because he's, I think he knows or has met Sonic Boom. Right. Um, from the band and has had various encounters with him and, and we're always regaled by what happened, you know, like, and so now we're super jealous of that. But um, um, no, they were always really loud, right? So yeah, we, were, yeah. we were just plugging six or seven guitar pedals together and just twiddling with the knobs and trying to recreate whatever sound they were coming out with. And it was always the loudest thing we could do. <laughs> <laughs> but there isn't much of that wig out kind of stuff on the early demos. There's a, yeah, kind of hints towards it in the Violet Hour a little bit, but yeah. I think, I think Alistair um, quickly, you know, directed us musically in a particular way. That we st- I think that, you know, we had a lot of energy as teenagers and that was maybe being expressed as very, very loud. And, and Alistair does still, sometimes he will completely, you know, go for his kind of guitar solos and they're pretty loud and things. He, he will, you know, get right into that still today when he's playing on stage. But um, I think back then as a band, we would just be trying to make as much noise as we could. Yeah, in the way that only teenagers can, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you always followed the Cleontel's career and got the albums when they come out and everything? Yeah. Yeah, I've been very lucky that, that Alistair's so, uh, you know, Alistair and James have both been very generous in terms of, you know, sharing um, with me pressings of vinyl LPs and, you know, singles and stuff. Um, they're, they're quite often, you know, letting me listen ahead of time when they're mixing things. So I get kind of early access to, not always, but sometimes, you know, um, I sometimes get to like a sneak peek of what they're working on. Mm. Uh, and this certainly was true of the latest album. When I got to hang out at the studio, I could hear what they were playing and mixing. So um, I've tried to I've tried to keep abreast of what they do. Whenever they've played in London, I've tried to always, you know, go to the gigs. It's quite a a good opportunity to meet up with friends that we haven't seen for a long time who also follow the clientele. So um, yeah, I've tried to. And are there any particular songs or albums that you like from the later years? I've always, yeah, I've always really admired um, uh, Since K Got Over Me. Yeah. That one's really stood out as like, it's got a life of its own somehow yeah. compared to a lot of the other songs. It's just really, I don't know, that one really kind of made a big impression on me. Yeah, it's a great song. Julian, Which songs do you play on on Suburban Light? Do you know? Oh, I had to go. I did have to go through this list recently because um, Alistair convinced me to sign up for the, um, uh, you know, the musical royalties thing. Mm. So I had to actually go and assign myself. I remember playing on Reflections After Jane mm-hmm. um, because that was the first. That was the first kind of like breakthrough demo record that we. That was, I think, what Andy 
was listening to when when Pointy Records first uh, spoke with Alistair and they ended up signing. Um, so, but that was, you know, Reflections After Jane was obviously a big one. And that was an interesting bone of contention as well, because I remember um, we talked about, um, you know, The Evening in Your Eyes. And, and that was a much more kind of like energetic, more sort of upbeat thing. And there was a big kind of discussion about what would make the right song for that first demo. Like, which song is going to hook the deal that we need, you know? And um, obviously Alistair was, you know, had probably had casting vote because they're his songs. But, um, and, and, you know, probably quite rightly, Reflections After Jane was the one. But I remember thinking at the time, this is surprising to me that that would be the one that catches on. But actually, looking back, it was completely the right decision. Yeah. And it just sort of it opened my eyes to the kind of possibility of, actually, this doesn't all have to be high-energy music. It's, there's a completely different opportunity here. Well, it's... um, Again, it's that incredible atmosphere, isn't it? And it just seems to be so evocative. And I mean, for me, it almost functions in the way that ambient music functions, where it just you enter into this mood or this space or the, this place when you're listening to it. And it's, and it's just beautiful melodically, isn't it? It's just a great tune as well. Yeah. As all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Incredible. 16 million plays on Spotify now. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what, any, any others on um, Suburban Light? I mean, a lot of them, you know, I can't remember exactly which ones I played on, to be honest. I think maybe Rain. I can remember uh, playing this one. Um, James is going to be kicking me when he sees me next because I've just gone through this list and had to write them all down. <laughs> just saying to the guys, I can't remember which ones I played on. Surely this wasn't all me. Yeah. Um, yeah, We Could Walk Together, Rain, Reflections After Jane. Um I think you can kind of tell like anything with a with the drums sounding a little bit cleaner or less out of time <laughs> or or maybe like a bit more kind of uh sophisticated is probably not me. <laughs> and the more kind of like basic kind of stuff is probably me. Right. Um this is why Alistair's comments always make me laugh about the swing. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you do you miss that that world then do you do you think? Yeah, no, I completely do. Um, having a creative outlet is something that I value quite highly, but sadly, I don't really have that many these days. So um, I always jump at the chance to, you know, collaborate with the guys if they're if they're ever interested in having someone, you know, drum for them or whatever, um, shake a tambourine. You know, it's just <laughs> nice to be involved. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I still kind of like, you know, I've got a guitar at home and I still noodle around. Yeah, I remember. Um, you know, February Moon was actually a collaboration between Alistair and myself. Right. So um, I was trying to play chords that were particularly hard for me to reach on the fretboard. And I don't even remember exactly which chord it was now, but I had I was able to reach across the fretboard wide enough to play a chord that sounded quite nice. Uh, and progressed it into another couple of chord changes that, that Alistair quite liked. And then he eventually just uh, said, you know what, I'll, I'll, why don't I put some lyrics to this and then a tune over the top and we can record it. Yeah. And that's eventually what became February Moon. Great. Oh, that's a beautiful song. 
So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I still, you know, I used to, I was never as confident, you know, musically or technically as the guys were, but uh, I definitely enjoyed the process. Yeah, yeah. It's quite an amazing feeling, isn't it, to be creating music with people? I mean, yeah. Um, I remember when I was, the band I was in, when we would practice and we'd come up with something, it was such an amazing feeling. You just almost hope you had this absolute mania. We need to record this now because what if we forget it? And it was this incredible <laughs> feeling of, you know, really wanting to capture something because it was that feeling you described of having come up with something from nothing, you know. Yes. It was, um, yeah, some of the, my favourite memories, really, of playing with, with, with in a band and things. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, have you seen the, um, the, the, I don't know if you've seen the Beatles documentary. That, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's just that, you know, mm. you're in a room, suddenly you get access to, oh, my God, that's that Beatles song that I recognise and I love. Yeah. yeah. And they're just, like, riffing and making it up on the spot. Wow. Yeah. But you definitely get something from, you know, from obviously the the sheer amount of time the Beatles had spent together. But, you know, I mean, there's something similar going on with obviously what you guys had, that you'd, you'd obviously practised so much together that it had forged an incredibly close relationship. Yeah. 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 Alistair's got very good uh, non-verbal communication on stage, by the way. Oh, really? So so when it comes to, like, timing and nods and, like, you know, now, <laughs> that kind of, like, you know, non-verbal stuff, Yeah. Um, I felt like, you know, at our kind of peak when I was with them that... That, that kind of uh, intention always came across really strongly and I felt like it always added to the performance. But then we would always have this like running joke in the band that everybody would get it, but Innes wouldn't see it. And then he'd just carry on playing and everyone would have stopped. <laughs> <laughs> well, so he'd give you little nods about dynamic changes, like play this a bit quieter or you know, yeah, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, like um, the timings of like, you know, uh, chord changes or, you know, mm. mid late or, you know, how many bars to play before the song cuts dead or something like this, you know. Thanks so much to Dan Evans for, for that chat. That was so nice to speak to him. Next up, it's my conversation with the equally lovely Innes Phillips. Innes, how are you? I am doing very well. Thank you for inviting me onto this, Robin. I'm excited and I've been racking my brain to try and remember what happened because <laughs> a lot of it was a long, long time ago. Yeah, it must be strange to cast your mind back all those years really is and as we'll go into a bit of detail there was a fair bit of booze drunk in those days oh, really? <laughs> and um you're you're over in australia at the moment when did you move out there i am the back end of 2004 so i've been okay. here almost almost 20 years now it's, it's definitely had an effect on your accent i can i can hear <laughs> so i hear i think i'm stuck somewhere in the middle uh, people <laughs> i did uh, last time i went back we did a gig uh, in london and I think I stood up there and went, hey, how's everyone going? In a particularly Australian accent, which just had everyone falling around laughing. But, but yeah, for me, it's it's pretty normal now. That's great. 
So um, when did you first become interested in music? Was there a particular record that you fell in love with when you were younger? So I think before before getting into the music, we, Alistair and I, and obviously the rest, we grew up in the time of Stock Aiken and Waterman, mm. where there was you know, lots of musical entertainment, but there wasn't really much music happening. <laughs> I think I remember the age of seven going home and telling mum and dad that I wanted to play the guitar. Nice. So for some reason they bought me one. So that, was, <laughs> that was the start of it. And by pure coincidence, really, Alistair was actually at the, the same music teacher uh, mm. at the time. So we'd go along there. I think usually it was one-on-one lessons, but I did bump into Alistair occasionally. And um, that was really the start of it. The first album I ever bought was Absolutely Madness. So I think okay. that that's that stands the test of time. I'm, yeah, that's I'm not disappointed in that. No. Obviously, it was mostly about baggy trousers. I think <laughs> I'd have been ten or so then. So yeah, there was because I guess we got the tail end of we had that sort of great music from the seventies, and and certainly as like you know a young boy, we didn't really know where to go for for the good music that was definitely happening at the time, but it was all you know, Radio 1 and and things like that. So there wasn't a huge amount that I think sparked joy in any mm. of us in any kind of way. Did you follow Alistair by going back to the 60s music as well then, or was that...? Oh, look, we, we fell into that fairly quickly, but mm. now Alistair may dispute this, and, and this, <laughs> these are my my recollections, is it was actually quite... Um, my astounding to a number of people. It was actually the Pixies song, Monkey Gone to Heaven. Right. That that we sort of first bonded over and literally went, hey, I've heard this great track on whatever it was, MTV back then. And we were like, yeah, it's cool, isn't it? Let's let's um let's form a band. And that's that's what that's how I remember it. Alistair may disagree, but but I don't even think it was necessarily the Pixies so much as that was the first probably you know, real and fresh music that we'd we'd heard. So it was, I think, just that awareness of there's other stuff out there. It was it was a bit rawer and a bit bit more real. Yeah, but um, that's really interesting because Alistair's. When I've spoken to him, he's always very uh, resistant to saying he was ever into any heavy music or any loud music. So it's interesting to hear that it was the Pixies that. First I, I think it was. Yeah. Like I say, it was it was a long time ago. I, I give him the right to dispute <laughs> that. But um that's that's my memory of it. But I think we we did like the heavier music. So God, I'm I'm trying to think now. There were bands like Mercury Rev and Spiritualized that, mm. that we got into that, that did have a pretty big sound. Yeah. Um again, he'll shoot me now. I think part of the move towards the softer side of things was just we weren't able to sing the really heavy stuff. We didn't have <laughs> that big rock voice. So we naturally sort of segued to to softer things. And look, they had, I think by the, that time, we really had locked on to things like there was, you know, Nick Drake was unsurprisingly a pretty big influence. But um even Pink Floyd, like it was, we cast on it widely. You know, in, in those days, it was the time of uh, you know mixtapes that your friends put together for you. So there was no curated uh, way of getting into all the different types of music you liked, and you'd you'd literally spend half your pocket money on an album that 
that we never actually listened to in the shops. And I'm now thinking back, did we miss a trick with that? And, <laughs> you know, we could have listened to it. So you buy an album and you'd listen to it to death and back. And often or not, you wouldn't even admit that you didn't quite like it because you'd spent so much of your money on it. So yeah, we had to really invest in those decisions, didn't you? It was, it was hard yeah. to work out which one to, to buy, at the, you know, on the Saturday. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. And because I, I was thinking, you know, what to, to talk about for this. And, yeah, the loss of the mixtape, I think we can do that in Spotify. But it's not the same. And it's, you know, that took real time and dedication in the past to, to set those up. Alistair's talked a lot about growing up in Fleet and how that affected his songwriting and and his outlook. And he talked about this idea that when you, fa- when you found like-minded people, you formed very close relationships with them because it felt like nothing was kind of happening in this town. Oh, yeah. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah, it was... Um... You know, don't underestimate the boredom of the suburbs to, <laughs> yeah. to sort of to drive you drive you into into investing all that time and effort mm. in those things. And yeah, you know, it was yeah those early days we were we were really bad, Robin. Like we were not <laughs> we were not good. Um, you know, everyone has to go through that apprenticeship stage. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Like I think we we started off as sort of as a joke band, just making sort of silly noises and singing probably rather mean songs about classmates. But <laughs> yeah, that that was our that was our beginning. And but yeah, there was there was literally not much to do where we were. And I think, you know, we weren't very good at fighting. We tried that. We we both did <laughs> both did martial arts. We both did Lao Ga Kung Fu really? for a few years. Um yeah. <laughs> We hadn't met genuinely scary people at that point in our lives, and you know we we didn't realise that we would never be the tough people because you know, I think we yeah just wasn't in our makeup. So we tried that. Um, yeah, there was yeah the kids would go up and they'd hang out in the I think they were civic centre. Mm-hmm. Jeez, that's a blast from the past. Yeah, they'd, <laughs> they'd hang out there smoking cigarettes. That's probably when when we all started smoking as well. Yeah. And you and Alistair were very close then. Dan Evans talked about how you had what sounds like almost a symbiotic relationship, lots of, you know, maybe a shared language, I imagine, or private jokes and things. He also talked about how funny you were together. Yes, yeah, I guess that's not for me to comment. Oh, really? Um, okay. I think, <laughs> look, yeah, absolutely. We were, we were definitely, you know, pretty close then and I think as we got more and more into the music it was sort of largely him and I driving it probably more out you know if I, if I look back he was always a lot more prolific than me as well he had I think he had a deeper understanding of where he wanted to go with that even from an early age he was able to to story tell in a way that I never felt I quite could or if I did mine was clumsier or just or stuff that took me a long, long time to figure out what on earth I was actually singing about. But yes, it was. I think it was. There was probably that that shared love of the sixties music, yeah, and and that experimentation with you know what we do musically, but also that that time where we couldn't go to Spotify or Apple Music and you know really explore stuff. So we had to figure out things ourselves. So yeah, we naturally ended up spending a fair bit of time together. And was comedy 
quite important to you as well? Because I always think music and comedy go hand in hand at that age in terms of getting really into something. Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, I suspect we were probably landing somewhere, you know, in between us stage <laughs> when, I, when I look back. That's, yeah. you know, we were we were idiots. And most, <laughs> most of our comedy was almost certainly laughing at, at one another. So in, in Australia, there's a concept of the tall poppy syndrome. It's, you know, the moment someone sticks their head above, they'll get sort of dragged down. And I think we always had a very keen sense of, if someone was getting a bit up themselves, would be very keen to to drag them down and bring them back. Done through comedy, but it did it did you know keep you at sixteen years of age for a very very long time. Because the moment we all catch up again, we are sixteen year olds. Really? Mm, yeah. Maybe we've grown up a little bit. Maybe we're eighteen now when we catch up. But <laughs> it's all silly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you still have a good, you obviously still have a good relationship with everyone in the band and everything. Look, I, I do. It's, you know, time and distance doesn't help, but we've got a relatively active WhatsApp and WhatsApp have we moved over to Signal. I think we've got it on Signal as well. But yeah, it's it's a fair bit of chatter, but, you know, I think everyone's got kids these days apart from James. So we've all got, you know, busy lives with, running off and doing sporting stuff with them and, and things like that. So, yeah, look, we keep in touch. At some point I should go back to to England. My wife Sarah's Australian, but she's right. very keen to go back and yeah. very annoyed at me for <laughs> delaying on yeah. that. And what, so what happened as the band started playing more in London and was, was there a decision to leave the band or was there a... I mean, you don't have to talk about this if you'd rather not... <laughs> No, look, it's it's probably worth talking about, but it's look. I think going back a little bit before we get there, I remember before we did our our first proper gig, and I'll probably get the details wrong. It was something like the Winchester Arms Hotel, so it was outside of Fleet. And I remember before doing a gig, just the it was actually in retrospect adrenaline, but my hands shaking so much. And we obviously play this delicate finger style. And I was there, um, you know, with hands shaking and thinking, oh, gee, this is this is intense. And I guess the reason for saying that is there was always an unease. We didn't, we weren't sort of natural performers. And I think there was always a bit of a tension there for it. And as I've got older and I talk more and more to people as part of my, my day job and things like that, I kind of think, wow, we should have should have done some more there. But we were figuring out all that stuff all by ourselves. The internet wasn't even really a thing then. So there was no guide. And I think that's that was why the, the friendships developed to those point. And it was also quite isolating in London. So we were there, we were trying to figure out this brand new thing that was stressful as all heck. Um, so no, no one to really guide us through it. And we didn't have a huge social group at that time as well. So it was quite a a sort of full-on time. And I would have been, I think, would have been 24, 25. And honestly, I was, I was drinking a fair bit. I think we were all drinking. We was there, there was a year or two when we all lived in Granville Road where I don't think we had many sober nights, if any. In fact, that was, I still remember going out and... Uh, we should be dead, right? Because our evening meals were probably some cigarettes, 
<laughs> two Stellas and some a pot noodles, some fried chicken. Yeah, no, no, fried chicken, <laughs> fried chicken. Which, yeah, okay. Which came with these chips that were called refries. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they were chips that they'd fried twice because wow. apparently, apparently, just fried chips by themselves aren't unhealthy enough. Yeah. Twice as nice. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. They were they were quite crunchy from yeah. memory. So look, it was. I guess we were going through all that, and I probably wasn't in the best space, and that that wasn't the main reason for me leaving, but I think definitely a contributing factor. And it was it was good to step away and just let things calm down. I mean, the timing sucked because it was right before I think the first album came out, and that's that's largely why I think. Mostly at Al's prodding, we got together and did the the Relict album, mm, mm. which was, I guess, a coda to to what would have you know, been a joint album otherwise, and it was to to capture those songs there. So that was, you know, I'm glad I did that. But it was yeah, it took a, a few years to step away, right? From that, interesting. But I mean, it's so hard. I mean, you're very young at that at that time. It's hard to figure out what you're doing at that age, really. You know. Oh, it was. I mean, and and most of our decisions were made over a beer, and we had some, you know. It was, to this day, probably one of the most vivid times of my life. It was a mm. sh- relatively short time, but yeah, we'd go out and we'd we'd have all these plans, and you know, even now, what, sort of twenty five years later, still sort of quite vivid. You know, where we lived, how we lived, and things we talked about. It's like, yeah, we'd. We'd go out and brainstorm about how to to do gigs better and better things like let's get a big sheet up there with a light behind us so we're just standing in front of it and yeah. you know all those <laughs> just, yeah different ideas yeah, about yeah. how how to do different things and definitely I think we were you know very fond of the Beatles then as well so with the whole um, you know Sergeant Pepper's how that was sort of really reimagined music for a lot of people we were experimenting with that as well so there was sort of, we were playing around with how do we get songs you know into a different state a different way of being i think ours ours pretty successfully continued that that on You know, you talked about being uh, in between us style teenagers and then living in this young one style house, eating fried chicken and drinking lots of beer. But but the it, it's amazing, though, the music is so delicate and sensitive that you were making. It's, yeah. it's, it's quite, almost a contrast there. <laughs> I, think, I think it was our sister that came out with a comment along the lines of, how can an arsehole like Innes come out with music like that? <laughs> Okay, yeah, because it wasn't, yeah, we were, the music we wrote was probably quite different to the way we were. But certainly for me personally, I I think it was, it was a cathartic thing. There was some things I'd gone through in earlier life that I was still working through. And I even think like there, there was, I never actually became an alcoholic or, you know, but I think there was nascent alcoholism happening there. And there's songs like I saw your eyes today that I now look back and go, gee, I wasn't really singing about a girl, I was singing about a bottle. You know, right. there's different 
different sort of insights that you can get from that. But. That's so interesting to read that in, you know, many years after the event. Yeah, figure it out eventually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry that you went through that. I mean, you, you seem very healthy now and in good, oh, in good no. form. You know, <laughs> absolutely. No, yeah, it's yeah. like I say, it was for a long, long time. Look, I was probably an odd kid. Like my my son's been diagnosed with ADHD and. They say the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So I expect in many ways I was quite socially odd as a as a youngster. And I've I've learned to get through that and pass that. But I think I was absolutely monofocused on on music. And I probably wasn't the nicest of people as a result, because that was all I wanted to do. And I was very driven towards that. As I've got older, I've I've chilled the heck out and you know, actually it's the people and friends around me and family that's yeah. that's the important thing so yeah i'm in a good place now that's good well, that's very good to hear but i mean i think the songs which are collected on it's art dad which you famously uh, shouted down at your dad from your rehearsing in the loft um they're beautiful and i think you're, you know you're doing them down i think you know there some of your songs are very distinct from alistair's but often i find it hard to tell the difference with some of the songs on it, on It's Art Dad, because your voices sound similar at times and the songs share a, a haunted quality, I think. Um, I suppose that speaks to that close relationship. Were, were you collaborating on songs or were you finishing each other's songs or were you kind of competing against each other? We were, no, definitely playing with each other. And in hindsight, I wish I'd spent more time working on harmonies and things like that. I was, you know, had the offer of going for singing lessons and I, I thought I knew everything then. And, you know, as, as I now know, I know, in fact, very, very little. Um, and I wish I'd done that because I think there were opportunities. But probably the reason you can't tell the difference between who's singing is because often we're both singing on the same tracks. We're right, doing okay. voiceovers and we're bouncing. So you're probably hearing both voices. So, yeah. Right, I see. Yeah. But... Um... I mean, your songs on It's Art Dad, Gravenwood, it's obviously a great song, which was later re-recorded by the band. Yeah, that was the the quiet hit. I wouldn't have picked that one, but it's the one that uh, everyone keeps coming back to. And it's now tradition, whenever they're doing an encore, you have to shout out Gravenwood. And <laughs> I, I still, to this day, pay quite a lot of money to make sure that happens. <laughs> and can you talk us through the other songs on... It's Art Dad that are yours. February, does it alternate? Does it? Is it kind of one of yours and one of Alistair? Uh, not entirely. Mm-hmm. Let me... Uh, Ask Dr Google. With the power, power of the internet. <laughs> yeah. I did actually, I gave him a listen through last night. Mm. That must be strange listening to songs you recorded at such a young age. <laughs> no, no, it, it really is. And it, do you know what, it's... Um, it's like how sight and sound can take you right back. Yeah. When you when you listen to them, it it snaps you right back those twenty, almost thirty years. Because like a lot of these songs were written, you know, before we were twenty, and especially as well, I'd, I'd probably forgotten some of those. Things. You know, it was a long time ago. We wrote them. They just ended up in a drawer somewhere. So it was that's even more. You know, powerful hearing that for the first time. So what have we got? So Alistair did Dear Jennifer and February Moon, Elgrove Window. 
So the night that changed our minds, that was one of mine. Shadow, shadow of your life, the words we knew, can't sleep and sweeten your eyes. What's impressive about listening to those songs together is obviously how young you are, but I feel like when when you're young um, and you're getting into music, it's easy to you know, come up with a, a riff or a chord change. It's very hard to finish a song. So what's impressive is that you've, you've recorded all these songs and they're beautifully structured and there's a real sense of craft about them. Well, thank you. <laughs> I think Alistair probably had a, a different experience for me. I think, like, I don't know if I was a natural songwriter and you just get into these states every now and then where it all kind of clicked in. And it's usually when you had to do something else, like you're about to run out somewhere and you just pick up the guitar for two minutes and then you're locked on. But when it happens, there's nothing like it. It's it's an amazing feeling. But it's very ephemeral as well. Like for me, it never lasted that long. And, you know, I'm I'm in awe of people like, Gavin Baker from Billy Mahoney, the way he could, he could, I'll say it there, he could write a tune the way you and I could have a conversation. He could just, like, just a natural, you know, song master. He'd just, he'd just churn it out. For me, it was a lot more fleeting, but, you know, beautiful for all that. So when it happened, you grabbed it with both hands, knowing I had five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, and then whatever it was I was trying to get for, that, that was as far as you got. So it happened usually fairly quickly and not at all, you know, on demand. So, and I think that added to the stress as well, right? So I was there young. I had no discernible skills outside of music. I was working for five pound an hour through manpower, uh, just doing really data entry style jobs. Mm -hmm. So I had no plan B and I was writing maybe five, six songs a year. So it was... Tenuous springs to mind. <laughs> what was Alistair's rate like at that period? Because it felt like he was writing a lot. Yeah, and no, I think Alistair could always, it was a lot more prolific mm. than I think. Yeah, if it wasn't one a month or one once a fortnight, he was getting them out pretty quick. It was, but that, I guess they, the first songs there, they were the ones that didn't make it onto Suburban Light or the Relict ones. And, and honestly, we probably just forgot about some of them. It's not that, that we went, oh, gee, that's that's not good. And I know when this first came out, Al and I were talking about some of the songs and going, oh, wow, how did we forget about that? Again, mm. don't know. A lot, <laughs> of, a lot of beer was drunk. So, What are your, um, your favourite songs of yours on It's Art, Dad? Uh, I have, because I mentioned it's cathartic, so I don't, tend to listen back too much and I didn't really love my voice so I, I prefer some of the songs on the Relict album where we've got the other people singing but if I had to pick one oh, it's going to have to be Gravenwood right yeah. like I, I, oh is it my favourite no <laughs> maybe Sweet In Your Eyes yeah out of those ones 
I really like, you mentioned that earlier, obviously, Nick Drake being an influence. There's something lovely about finger-picked electric guitar. So did you play in the same style as Alistair, then, where you were finger-picking rather than strumming with a plectrum? Yeah, absolutely. So like, we were both classically trained, and I think that stuck with us. Alistair did definitely experiment more with blues-style riffs, but I, I pretty much stuck to finger-style. Yeah. To the point that I actually had a, a semi-acoustic, so... I didn't really play the electric guitar too much, though. The odd gig, I'd, I'd pick one up. Yeah. But yeah, mostly mostly acoustics. I feel like your your songs, when I'm comparing them with Alistair, um, although I said sometimes it's hard to tell the difference, but I feel like your songs um, are more based on repeated looping chords and they're more maybe more effects-driven or mood-based and I feel like I can hear maybe more of an American influence of the Velvets or Galaxy 500 in, in your songs, maybe more than Alistair. I definitely like the Velvets. I never really listened to Galaxy 500. I know, I know Alistair likes it. My, my musical taste is widely different, and I mostly listen to electronica and, and trance and stuff these days. Oh, uh, really? Right, <laughs> so, okay, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, yeah. I, I think I'm, I'm mostly... I guess melody driven, and I think you can find a melody in in so many different things. But um, yeah, I'd probably the, well that that repetitive is is probably tied to that that ephemeral nature of my songwriting, which mm-hmm. was once it was gone, it was gone, and whatever I was left with, plus some you know tips and tricks about how to then pull that together. There was yeah, that was I think that was oh, I have to check out the. The Relict album. There was a few tunes on there that didn't repeat too much, but they were super short. They were like one minute 40. Yeah. Let's move on to the Relict album. So this is Tomorrow Is Again, came out in 2003. And you mentioned there that it was a sort of coda to those early years. Yeah. So how did the, how did the album come about? So that was, I think, largely... It was Alistair and there was... Julian Hyde, who Julian I've lost touch with, so if if he hears this, Julian, I hope you're you're doing all right. <laughs> but um, yeah, through I think Julian did a single with the clientele, and he was sort of looking around for for doing a bit of an album. So Alistair sort of put us together, and we had a sort of drink and a chat about it. And I think I think by this point I'd taken a bit of a break away from music and. Like part of probably not being in my comfort zone earlier, I was probably more controlling about what should happen, even though, or probably especially though, I wasn't very good at it. So I think by that point, I'd relaxed a little bit more. And the the going in position was to treat it as a collective. And to the point, I'd really give the melody and the lyrics, and then everyone else could do whatever else they wanted. Right. So Mark... Mark Keane came up with the piano on Along the Avenue that I still love. Oh, I love that song. I would never have thought of that. And it was, yeah. I think it was, the weird thing is working in tech now and in Agile Delivery, which is very much about embracing the team. It was, it was like a, a beginning step towards that. And like I loved that experience. And I think it, it took the pressure off me for something I wasn't very good at anyway and let people really shine because we had all these great musicians around us that you know were in the sort of community and it was it was so lovely to do it all with them mark keen was absolutely 
instrumental with this. So it was in his basement. He gave up, you know, evening after evening, at least one evening a week. I'd cycle over sometimes, and we'd, he was in Finsbury Park, and then we'd organise for the different singers and the different musicians to come along and, and build it out. So we had people like Pam Berry, Lupe Nunez, and gosh, I get in trouble. There's uh, a girl called Abigail who sung on Held in Glass, which like I think for me, Held in Glass probably captured where I was and how I was in London in that time. It did feel like just sort of basically stuck and not going anywhere. It was like something I definitely moved past, but it was part of that moving to London from, you know, really busy and embracing and nurturing uni experience to, to being with four people in London and knowing very few other people and yeah, not being very good at building out our social group at that time. The held in glass definitely, I guess, captures a feeling like for me that was, I, I still, like at that point I was living in, not Muswell Hill, I'd been moving to Stoke Newington by that point. And that was, that was how I felt about a lot of it. So it was, but no, I, I, I absolutely loved doing that, that album. Were you recording stuff remotely? Were, were were the guest musicians doing their voices on you know in America and sending you files no. and doing it all there? Right? No, no. God, there was all lo-fi. It was all. I think they had a reel-to-reel sixteen-track. Uh, they'll probably tell me it was bigger and better, but it was <laughs> no. It was all all purely analog. Yeah, I think we didn't. I didn't really know too many people in the states to to get into that with them, but it was yeah, just the the people in the community who we got to know. And I think it was through the clientele, I mean, people like Tim Hopkins, who was tied into a lot of, of that. And that's how I actually met my then girlfriend, now wife, that, um, that the time spent with you it was largely about. So, you know, that worked out. We're 20 years next year. So, Oh, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and, how, and what about Pam Berry from Black Tambourine? Was that, was she in London then at the time or was she? Yes. Yeah, yeah no, she was sort of one of the sort of best friends of of Sarah, mm-hmm. my wife's, and sort of I cobbled her into a lot of it. I think she wasn't happy with the key that I was playing some of the stuff because it didn't suit her voice. But I just you know, <laughs> couldn't do any. <laughs> I was yeah. limited in that. Yeah, she and and Lupe, Alistair's partner, um, yeah, was singing together, and I I liked it because I thought it gave a whole new dimension, a whole new sort of way of being for that well yeah along the avenue I, th- I think that's just such a beautiful song i think and, and yeah mark's piano just works amazingly in there doesn't it didn't it oh yeah just lifted it like i say i wouldn't have gone there um myself wouldn't have known how to but i'm so glad he did thing i i really like about the album is the quality which you don't really get in cleontel albums is two guitars harmonizing together 
where you get that lovely chiming sound. I think that's a really beautiful part of that record sound. Oh, nice. And that's, again, I have to give Alistair a lot of the credit for that because I, I literally laid down the sort of the vocals and the the melody on guitar mm. and then just gave everyone carte blanche to go. And I think Alistair did, you know, real, real nice stuff with that. And yeah, like just a bit more relaxed, a bit more experimental, maybe. Yeah. That's a really good album. Um, and there's a lovely song on the album called Childlike, which seems significant because there is this naive quality to that seems important to yours and Alistair's songs. Could you, does that make sense? Am I on the right track with that? <laughs> yeah, no, no, it does. Um, it's difficult to know how much to say about that one. It's, it's, in many ways, it's not my story. It's it's probably about me being very naive when I was, you know, sort of mid-teenager and trying to help someone that, you know, I was in no way, shape or form able to help. Right. But okay. too naive to know that. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. But... Um... Mysterious, wow, so... but interesting. But yeah, yeah. Not, not <laughs> but um, do, does that make sense in terms of other songs and other clientele songs that there's that naive childlike quality or childlike sense of wonder to some of the songs? Ah, uh, definitely, mm. definitely. I think it's that's a large part of it, and I don't know if we were trying to recapture our childhood because. Mm. I don't think we enjoyed our childhoods that much. <laughs> I think we were trying to reimagine our childhoods, right. maybe. And That's a crucial about, distinction. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it have been great if it had been like this? Um, and like, not that, you know, that any of them were sort of particularly bad or dire childhoods. They were just, we, we grew up in a town where no one had been born there. Everyone had come there chasing their own different things. And there was... Yeah, no, no real cohesion, no sense of community that, you know, as I've travelled since and lived in different countries, it's it's much more evident here. You know, there's, there is real community in Australia that I struggled with. But maybe that's with having children as well. So it's, I think a lot of it is, you know, being very driven musically. We were probably slightly odd, or well, I know, speak for myself, I was probably a slightly odd young man as well anyway. Actually, if talk, talking about naivety, here's a story for you. So it was Alistair and I, once we'd finished uni, we're like, um, oh, they got a, there's a careers fair on up in London. Let's go there. And we're like, sure, we'll go there. We'll get a like, 30, 40, year, 40 grand a year job <laughs> while we're doing the music. Yeah, no problems. So, so we rock up there and, you know, we're talking to a few of the booths. I think by about the second or third one, we hadn't completely made idiots of ourselves. And then the person went, okay, let's, well, if you could just give me a copy of your CVs. What's a CV? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Alistair got a first from Edinburgh, so he really should have known better. Uh, my degree was, <laughs> was, was less good. But that, we were just so focused about the music. We yeah, hadn't yeah. even... Had and even done the basics elsewhere. <laughs> That's so funny. And I still now probably tell me that, in fact, he had a CV and it was just me, but for the <laughs> sake of the story, I'll say it was both of us. <laughs> That's very good. I suppose, the, yeah, modern day equivalent is asking for your LinkedIn, which, uh, God, I hate LinkedIn. Anyway, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I, I, I really um, just go, yeah, going back to the, the way the early Cleontel 
Stuff Sounded and the Relict album. It seems very out of time when you listen to it now that, it, you know, there are all these trends going on, you know, in the 90s, grunge or Britpop or, you know, the noughties revival of indie, landfill indie stuff. And yeah. It's all completely separate from that in some ways. Like it's harking back to an earlier time of sort of pre-grunge indie, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Does, it, does that make sense? Yeah. No, no, it does. And I think, you know, we did we did ponder for a while, did we did we miss an opportunity by not focusing on the band and instead going to university. So we're like, we, did, we didn't know if there was a time there because I think the we felt like we were probably closer to Britpop. So looking back now, no, probably probably not. No. I think it was, yeah, it, it was, it's hard to say. I think the, maybe the saving grace or maybe the thing that, that really nurtured the clientele was that there wasn't, a huge amount of music to easily access so we largely had to like we spent all of our money on, on beer and cigarettes so <laughs> we didn't we had limited resources for music now I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit but it's i think there was a scarcity of things certainly growing up we we cobbled together some instruments i'm pretty sure dan at one point was playing drums on a couple of upturned um drawers from <laughs> you know, from my bedside cabinet type of thing like like we'd make it work and you know I guess we didn't know then that that actually what we we're trying to do was quite hard and because we didn't know that we just got on and and done it yeah well I find it really interesting I find that whole era interesting particularly when you think about a genre like um shoegaze which is now incredibly trendy is but, it? Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> but um, in the 90s, when Britpop came along, the, the press, the music press was so negative to a band like Slow Dive. And it's, it's remarkable to think of now. It's actually quite cruel, really, <laughs> to a band like that. And, but it's so weird to think about how those trends was, seemed to be really driving a lot of the music press at the time, to the point where it was almost like, other types of guitar music just didn't exist or so unfashionable or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, and, and maybe that's that naivety that you've sort of you've picked up on that we didn't realise what we were doing wasn't gonna land and it, you know, it took a long time for that to get out there. But it was it was a a naive naivety with sort of, you know, some quite awesome benefits because seeing what they the clientele have gone on to do exactly, yeah. Could yeah, very easily we could have become and done something generic, or or I'll speak for myself. Probably I could have done that. I think I, you know, we can see with Alistair, he's got a significant body of work behind him, and is pretty consistent and cohesive. So he's he's got a bigger story to tell that he gives people glimpses of through his music. So. I loved how he could give you a snapshot and, you know, with relatively few words, evoke, like you say, a, a different time or a different way of being. Yeah. He's a, yeah, the lyrics are extraordinary, really. Have you heard, have you heard the new album? Yeah, I've been listening to, to a few songs. It's good to see them step out and do some more experimental type things. I think it um, seems to be landing really well, so it's getting a lot of... A lot of notice. It was like I, 
I do look back and I listen to to the clientele and and I do wonder why it wasn't bigger because it it's his own body of work that stands together so well and I think it does stand at least side by side by a lot of the you know the modern classics if not higher but yeah never never quite nudged up there so hopefully hopefully this will be the one for them because it's been a long time coming yeah well they certainly have a devoted following but yeah i suppose in terms of that radiohead level or something to use an example like that you know but uh but you know i think there's something to be said for having that you know small devoted following although that's easy for me to say (laughs) yeah i I think it's the yeah not being able to make a living out of it yeah (laughs) but that was i think you know by the time we did the tomorrow is again album a lot of the sort of ease of of doing it was the fact that it was strictly part-time strictly hobby so i think by that time I wasn't looking to make a living out of it and that took a lot of pressure off because you do have to be careful when there's something you know you love passionately if you're going to do it for a living that can be poisoned because you'll make compromises and sacrifices that wouldn't necessarily be within your control or the things that you want to do yeah. uh, whereas when you're not depending on it for a living you can do exactly what you want to do Definitely. I think that's something you can hear in the new album. And I think for sure the band struggled with doing that new album every two years thing, which they did for a decade, more or less. Yeah, well, they keep threatening to, to stop, but then they keep going, which <laughs> yeah. I think is is fantastic and keeps keeps a lot of people happy Yeah, as well. Definitely. And what about you? Have you got any more plans to do music yourself? Look... Yes, hmm. I just don't have the time. Yeah. So my my brother in law Adam does a lot of uh, of dancey stuff. I'd get the genre wrong, and so he's he's lent me some gear. So I've got like the Ableton software. Nice. And gee, that's that's a rabbit hole. I could. <laughs> but the reason I'm I'm holding off. I've spent a few very enjoyable days doing it. I could I could spend three months and, and maybe uncover about. 10, 15% of the software and, and the capabilities. So I, I love the time, but I've got a, you know, a young son at the moment and a fairly busy work. I'm like, I, yeah, can't, yeah, it's hard. Can't dedicate the time I'd like to, but it's yeah. still there. And I, I still absolutely would. And like the fantastic thing for things like Ableton is you can get so much help out there with, you know, you've got a bit of an idea. You can, you know, jump on YouTube and go, okay, I want drums like this. Okay, cool. That's how I how I write it. And, you know, I look back to to when we started and it was all completely analogue and you needed everyone and and we probably had pretty basic gear as well. So now you can get really crisp sounding things. So Yeah. So on the back on the back burner. Um, but yeah, more more dance orientated if that doesn't lose too many people. But um I mean you say that, but there are people who would probably pay a lot of money to make an album sound like it's art dad, so <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's um it does come through. Yeah. The quality's not always there. And that was Oh, I love it. Oh no, no, it's good, but it's 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 murky in places as well. And if I recall correctly, I think an awful lot of that 
we'd all finished uni and that was really all the songs that we'd written from the ages about 16, 17 through to, to 21, 22. And, um, yeah, we were on the, on the dole then and just buying cheap, cheap gin and tonics <laughs> and drinking them in the, the room above the garage where I slept and was our rehearsal studio. And, yeah, we sort of hung out there. And it was probably only three or four weeks. Feels like it was longer. We recorded a lot of that and then, you know, then the real world started to intrude and we got paying jobs and things yeah. like that. God, I hate the real world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you still play the guitar, though? Or have you gone purely to the dance side? Yes, but not as much as I should do. I should, I should play a lot more. And, yeah, I don't. I need to to get back into it for sure. And even if I do dancey music, it would probably uh, probably involve a fair bit of guitar because yeah. it would be silly not to. <laughs> That's great. Oh, and well, but yeah. Fi- final question: What's what's your d- favourite memory of looking back at all all the time you spent making music with Alistair? I think well, obviously it was Alistair, Dan, and James. Look, I think I think the really the best times were when it when it was these kids from Calthorpe Park School that we had this sort of crazy idea and we all played together. So that was. You know, it started off with Dan, Alistair and myself, and then we went to sixth form, we got James along. I think those times were probably in many ways the best times because we had so much in front of us. And I think when we got to London, then the real world did start intruding, you know, a lot more about how, what we needed to do um, and things like that. Thanks so much for listening to part one of episode nine of the Cleontel podcast. Please head over to part two to listen to my interview with Mel Dracy.